Yo, what's up? It's another episode of Real Sankar Hours. Real Sankar Hours. We we're recording this episode, uh, October twenty third, twenty twenty. Oh, by the way, yeah, follow us at Sankara Hours on Twitter. Um, and this is a free episode, but if you want uh, more bonus content, bonus content interviews, all that good stuff, patreoncom slash Hours. Um, we're recording this episode like just right after the last presidential debate so we we will not be talking about and i did not watch yeah i only watched part of it we're not talking about the debate but just to kind of give you an idea of when we record when when we're recording this is right after it after the debate anyway my name is adam hudson follow me at adam hudson 5 on twitter and this is peter m gunn uh follow me at M Gun Peter. Now, instead, we have some actual good news. Perhaps the only good news of the entire year. Um, of course, we're talking about um, Sun or yes, Sunday, October eighteenth, was the election in Bolivia. The and uh, the MAS party movement towards socialism, which had been deposed in a coup the year before. Um, one resoundingly outright majority, no runoffs, uh, which is Bolivia's system, um, where, you know, where if, if the top two vote getters, if they're within single digits of each other, they have to have a runoff, but no runoffs, outright majority. And, you know, I was expecting the CIA, you know, to pull a few more of its tricks, but apparently not. Apparently, even they can't argue with the people anymore. And so, uh, you know, the movement towards socialism, the Moss Party, will be back in power uh, pretty soon, which is incredibly good news. Um, I'll uh, Bolivia is an incredibly important country, and yeah, I'll explain I- why. And and before we go in more, so yeah, we'll be talking about Bolivia, then other stuff like uh, Prop 22 in California, um, basically the bill about um, Uber and Lyft, then the um, end SARS protests in Nigeria, things have been heating up in Nigeria, and then also um, uh, some of the kerfuffle around Ice Cube meeting with Donald Trump, uh, the contract with Black America, and this um you know people are using ice cube as like oh there's like this crisis of black men going for trump which is really stupid but anyway yeah we're talking about that we're not gonna be talking about the debate but yeah peter why don't you go into bolivia because you're right this is i mean you know 2020 has been hitting us with some bullshit but this is you know some good news yeah and i i want to say not to like brag or anything but I know a lot of people on the left, so to speak, have not, don't really pay a whole lot of attention to Bolivia uh, or really like Latin American politics in general beyond, uh, you know, whatever they hear in the headlines about Venezuela. But I had sort of first been hip to what was going on in Bolivia a while ago. When, once I started getting into, you know, the Bolivarian Revolution in Venezuela, that was you know, back 2012-2013, when sort of the left turn in Latin America, in South America, 
was still sort of going strong. You had, uh, you still had Chavez, you had uh, Kirchner, Cristina de Kirchner in Argentina, you had Perea in Ecuador. Um, and, you know, sort of slowly. Um, and also uh, Lula in Brazil as well, who who yeah. is basically a pr- political prisoner right now. Yeah. Or, yeah, Lula. Well, he's free. Finally. Oh, he's free. Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, Lula and the PT in uh, in Brazil, and sort of slowly, for different reasons, uh, you know, in Argentina, the neoliberal party won again in Ecuador. Sort of Correa's successor just turned absolute turncoat, and uh, and started doing all sorts of shady shit, and yeah, there was you know the sort of like soft coup in brazil that removed uh sorry her name's Lula? escaping me or, no. oh um uh, Dilma Rousseff Dilma yeah Rousseff, Rousseff. Sorry. but through it all Evo Morales the first indigenous president um I think in the entire continent um yeah I think so was uh you know stayed strong and the thing about bolivia is that it really was kind of a miracle like um venezuela of course has you know achieved resounding amounts of success in terms of poverty reduction in social welfare spending and infrastructure being built and sort of in creating a popular movement but of course it came at the cost of all the economic warfare being waged against it and all sort of the troubles that were causing economic problems but bolivia had always been like he morales had basically done everything correctly in terms of achieving large amounts of growth um drastically reducing poverty but also sort of hitting all the check marks that the imf would want him to and uh and yeah not you know not having any debt problems or anything like that i mean it was, I'm sure it was infuriating for a lot of, you know, the imperialists, but they really couldn't get him on anything. And he, you know, won three terms precisely because the people had responded to what he was doing. I mean, he really was essentially like FDR in that regard, that like he stayed in power because the people kept supporting him. But yeah. But Bolivia and Evo Morales is so corrupt. He's so corrupt, Peter. He's just, just I, he's that's, a bad. He's a bad dude. He's, a bad he's, dude. he's like a. I mean, he's a fucking choir boy. I mean, that that was the <laughs> thing that got me. Um, I remember because I I was at work when the news of the coup had broke, and there had been all the stuff that had been leading up to it. The sort of the astroturf protests around the Amazon fire that were sort of used to like lay the ground, and then the uh, sort of the fake controversy around that a lot you know the last election which ended up getting annulled um because of the or because of the oas and so everyone's clear the oas is the organi- organization of american states and it's basically at this point it's i think it's probably like all the countries in the western hemisphere except venezuela and cuba um, and it is essentially just the instrument of U.S. hegemony in for Latin America. That's that is its entire function is to sort of preserve the interests of U.S. capital in that continent. 
especially like in the context of Bolivia, um, Elon Musk basically. I remember him bragging about this on Twitter, like, "Oh, like we'll coup whoever whoever we want because well, there's a ton of lithium in Bolivia, which is yeah very important for um, a very important natural resource for the." manufacture of uh electric cars so yeah well not just electric cars i mean self like because tesla tesla is just run on sort of glorified cell phone batteries lithium-ion batteries so lithium actually gets used in a lot of things like every cell phone right has lithium in it right and and and, and then um this will also i mean not this is not directly specifically related to nigeria but more so africa uh coltan in the congo is also used in cell phones as well so yeah but what but it it gets deeper than that because what morales was trying to do because he had faced criticism from indigenous communities or, or over sort of pursuing extractive methods of you know resource development which is is something that is like it is kind of i mean you know people for whom it like are actually in that community and for whose land it actually affects that's one thing but it also sort of would be like an ultra left criticism you'd hear from like the jacobin type crowd whenever they had to offer their criticisms of you know the latin american projects that were far more massively successful than anything the U.S. left has ever done in the past fifty years. Um, well, actually, Peter, why don't, let let's let's get into that. Like, what? Because okay, so I'll I'll say this, and then and then you respond. So, um, some of the some of the responses have been like because people like this Moss's victory in Bolivia has somewhat been compared to the election in the united states um a comparison that i don't think is really like that some of the comparisons are pretty much off but but the one argument is that like hey look this is why electoral politics works you freaking (laughs) anti-biden leftist so therefore you should you know vote for biden because they got rid of the fascists so how is yeah how how what did bolivia do like what did like the bolivian opposition do that the the left in the united states is not doing um it well to put it clear you know to put it concisely uh the reason there was even allowed to be an election is because (laughs) there was basically for the entire year just massive strikes blockades just unprecedented displays of militancy which is not new for bolivia because they have like their militant workers movements it was exactly those kinds of mobilizations that brought evo morales to power in the first place and so for anyone who is any kind of dumb socialism types who want to use the bolivian example to say oh well this is why you can't give up on electoralism i would say yes we need to learn everything we can from bolivia and specifically that to get electoral victories, you need working class militancy, mobilized, right. you know, peasantries, and indigenous self-determination. I mean, because the real threatening thing was that Bolivia was undergoing, while a developmentalist project, also a decolonial project. I mean, 
Well, you know, uh, some on the soaked them, socked them, sucked. I don't, I don't know what to call them anymore. <laughs> some of them would say, "Oh, indigenous self determination." Well, don't you just want like an ethno state? Isn't it an ethno state? Ethno state. Bad? I mean, in Bolivia, there's 34 uh, indigenous nations, all with their own language, and the uh, the flag that you sometimes see, or maybe that for Bolivia, which is the Wapala flag, is a or a creation of the uh, that of that movement of the MAS movement to represent sort of the plurinationality. I mean, it wasn't an ethno state. Bolivia was officially a plurinational state, which I think is something that could serve as a model um, for, you know, at least in the intermediate sense for other uh, former or current settler colonies where it isn't where like, yeah, the entire state isn't dismantled, but it is understood that like, it's a state that is representing multiple sovereign nations and sort of no, well, not notoriously, cause I don't think they were widely seen, but I was seeing videos of police officers right when the coup happened, ripping the Wapala flag off. Um, I mean, the people that were put in, after the coup were just straight up insane fascists. I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. Janine Anya sort of that. This was notorious. She slapped a giant Bible down on the desk on TV of like the presidential desk and said, Bolivia has returned to Christ. And this is, this is the thing that I think sometimes like we um, oftentimes in the United States, when it comes to understanding, um, latin america and even the um white i would say like white supremacists and fascist elements because i think like in the united states because um the i don't want to get too deep into like deconstructing the latino or latinx identity but i think like because in the united states like anybody who's from latin america gets racialized as non-white i think what that often does to people who are not quite as informed about the the history and internal politics of latin america it it obscures the reality that like there are white people with very far-right fascist white supremacist politics that date back to spanish colonialism in the americas in the very same sense that like the white supremacy that is very much deeply embedded in the United States stems from uh, a genocide of Native Americans and the enslavement of um, enslaved Africans. You still have those elements in Latin America, and they are still inf- they're still influential in many of those countries' politics. I mean, it's um, similar with uh, with Brazil as well because Bolsonaro technically he's of italian lineage but um in order to basically whiten the population of brazil like they brought in more european immigrants and some of them actually like were from you know like basically like ex-fascists from italy i think like i think quite a few of them went to argentina if i'm not mistaken yeah yeah anyone with a german name who arrived there after world war ii in latin america's immediately suspect and there are a number of those in bolivia as well and it's funny that you say that because bolivia is deconstructing the latinx identity that's that was a big part of their project um 
but and they had to because Bolivia actually has like an indigenous majority of of people, and so yeah, like th- that had to be severely repressed by sort of the traditional, you know, descendants of colonialism that populate the ruling classes throughout Latin America. I mean, Bolivia was a, uh, you know, that that's where they killed Che. And actually, yeah, mm-hmm. uh, um, it's, I want to say it's funny. Um, obviously, this will, I'm sure this will be uh, rectified once MAS gets back in charge. But in 2016, Evo Morales, this is to show you how deep this project went. Uh, he actually opened an anti-imperialist military school in Bolivia. And when the coup happened, the, you know, the people empowered in the military at that point, they renamed that school to the heroes of Nanka Chazo. Uh, sorry, I'm sure I butchered that, uh, which is the military unit that killed Che. So this is this is the kind of these are the kinds of, you know, fascists that were put in charge at, you know, the behest, you know, with the full support of the United States. Um, And many of the liberals who were just not paying attention, you know, or 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 are just actively complicit, um, because even though there was, you know, perhaps some level of discontent, though, not certainly at the level uh, that the U.S. media tried to portray, um, there were, you know, people had people who used to be strong MAS supporters, you know, maybe had felt some mixed feelings, but they still, and I remember seeing sort of people, you know, let Latino comrades like posting about this and then sort of, they had Bolivian friends that would chime in. They would say, yeah, I mean, I have my criticisms of Morales, but, I'm still, but I'll still vote for him because it's still important to support the movement and that's the thing that that's the real true victory of this whole thing is that they i you know they imperialists always make the mistake of thinking like oh yeah just cut cut off the head of the snake and it's like no i mean this is a movement that literally goes back 500 years i mean bolivia has such a strong history of indigenous resistance uh I mean, Tupac Shakur uh, was named after Tupac yeah, and, um, yeah, an Incan chief. Yeah, yeah, Tupac Amaro. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there is a Tupac. Yeah, th- these are people who like yeah led indigenous resistance movements. You know, back in the seventeen hundreds. This is and so part of me was like, I I mean I actually I will say that a number of the left here that usually has terrible takes on international affairs was at least correct on bolivia i mean even bernie sanders called it a coup which i was surprised about but i realized that um you know they they're gonna do this with or without the u.s left like whether or not we get it right i mean they're not waiting for us they were not waiting for us they mobilized well they they shouldn't have to oh no they shouldn't have to and they're gonna Anyone who's like waiting on the, U- I'm sorry, but it needs to be said. Anyone who's waiting on the U.S. left to do anything is going to die waiting for that to happen on an international scale. Well, and I would also, I would also like even split that between like the black left, like the people who are 
when I mean the the maybe not the black left, but people who are on the black left who care about stuff like pan Africanism, um, yeah, you're better off like just doing your own thing and not waiting for uh the US left or I would I would at this point I'm kinda I'm calling them the settler left. Yeah, uh, yeah, the settler left, which is, you know, still dominant in the broader constellation of the thing we call the left in the United States. Exactly. But let's say that. Yeah. Um, one thing I, I meant to say when I was saying it goes deeper than that is that Morales was intending to, yeah, he was going to open up sort of lithium mines, but they were going to be nationalized, and he was basically going to form, like, the OPEC of lithium, you know, with, like, cooperation with other nations such that, like, those nations could set price could set the prices on it and that is definitely something that imperialists hate i mean they're still upset about over opec um which is you know as much as everyone hates saudi arabia and i'm not defending them i will say that like they were able to get their money um they they are were able to get their money and that is the, that's the thing i will say when people talk about extractivism especially in in countries that have been looted and exploited for centuries is that they should they should be allowed to develop and extract the resources that belong to them on their own terms and they should be allowed to get the money get their money for minerals that you know are necessary for the global economy i mean that i that is that can be part of a socialist project it doesn't have to be such a thing that is you know so incredibly environmentally destroying and uh destroying to communities it's possible to be able to engage in that kind of development without it being this whole terrible thing i mean bolivia was i believe and might still be the poorest country in south america and he like quadrupled the gdp and you know, did that also while creating a plurinational state. I mean, it is, and, and it, it's really, it was quite incredible. And I was so scared that like all of that could go away. And I, you know, it was even worse because I remember, you know, last year um, thinking that, you know, after the U S had just, was just totally eating shit in Venezuela with Juan Guaido you know one of the stupidest men on the planet i'll just say just (laughs) just like they really should have picked a better puppet i'm sorry but i think you know when that when this coup happened i yeah certainly there was the lithium and it was just like kind of the stars aligned but i think also some of it was the u.s needing to get a win under their belt to show you know that they still got it they still have their mojo this is their backyard you know monroe doctrine for life but (laughs) clearly it didn't work and so believe if anything mas is now more popular than it was before i mean they got a larger result now than they would have a year ago partially because people saw what insane fascists were running the place and you know of course all this happened pre-covid and then they just basically as one might expect fascists to do, just completely fuck up and ignore the whole thing. Um, and, but they did use COVID as an excuse to continue delaying the election. And I was 
pretty sure there wasn't going to be an election, but they managed to get that precisely because of the level of mobilization and organization and militancy displayed by Bolivian workers and peasants. And that is the lesson, is that we have to build that. If you want to achieve that same kind of success in the United States, we have to build that kind of a movement. And there are roots in doing it, but that's the thing that people are putting the cart before the horse on this and saying, oh, well, this is why elections work. No, elections work because there's a mobilized working class and militant working class. That's why they make elections work. Elections don't then work and then empower the working class. That's not how that works. And speaking speaking of elections, let's transition to um, this election, but not Trump versus Biden, but uh, (laughs) California. So on the the California ballot, there's um, this proposition called Prop 22. But before I talk about Prop... So Prop 20... uh, Before I talk about what Prop 22 is, I'll talk about California Assembly Bill 5, because Prop 22 is related to this. So AB5 in California, it was signed by... Um, Governor Gavin Newsom on September 18th, 2019, and is basically um, is designed to determine a worker's status as an independent contractor or an employee. And this relates specifically to um, companies like Uber, Lyft, DoorDash, these app-based companies. And so um, it basically essentially creates this ABC test to determine that a worker is an employee rather than, than an independent independent contractor now as someone who's i'll give some context to this because um i've been a freelance writer for a long time and so i'm familiar with the whole what it, being an independent contractor is like so um basically being an independent contractor that essentially means you're self-employed so you like you set your own hours and stuff like that but the thing is is that if you're self-employed um the you don't get automatic workers comp or um sink like health care those sorts of things that you, you have would to get. pay all your own taxes we have to pay yeah all those costs fall on to you as if you're self-employed whereas if you're an employee you automatically get into yeah like a health insurance plan workers comp um uh, what, uh un, what, unemployment those sorts of things yeah. paying into unemployment so with uber and lyft um basically they they're their drivers are classified as independent contractors, but the kind of work that they're doing is essentially like the work of a taxi driver who are unionized and have and are, are employees and have those sorts of workers' yeah. benefits. So basically, Uber, Lyft employees pretty much do the work of ta- taxi drivers without the workers pro- worker protections of taxi drivers. So AB5 has this ABC test for determining that a worker is an employee rather than an independent contractor. And so the first one, A, the person is free from the control and di- direction of the hiring entity in connection with the performance of the work, both under the contract for the performance of the work, and in fact, B, the person performs work that is outside the usual course of the hiring entity's business, and C, the person is customarily engaged in independently established trade, occupation, or business of the same nature as that involved in the work performed. Um, so this basically determined whether to decide whether a um, worker is entitled to benefits and regulations under base, uh, California wage laws. 
So, um, and the exemptions to AB5, because it gets tricky, because, like, there are some jobs where, like, like, let's say, okay, for example, um, a lot of performance artists and musicians who were are typically do, like, independent contract work, it, it sometimes messes with the AB5. Like, there is some pushback against some, some people, like, uh, performance artists, some freelance photographers, private investigators, accountants, saying, that like, hey, look, like, the, this AB5 kind of messes with our, you know, normal flow of business. And so, um, basically, they create exemptions for these specific professions. Um, being a musician, I, I know, like, people who are, like, let's say, set, um, for example, a session musician, right? So, like, someone who, like, uh, there are people who are little, literally professional session musicians. So, they record professionally, like, drums, guitar, engineering, those sorts of things. But the way they get paid is per gig. It's not, like you know going to an office like nine to five and yeah well yeah yeah and and that developed out of sort of the earlier days when yeah you did just like work for a record label and you were essentially their property i mean that's the old kind of studio system in Mm -hmm. the entertainment industry right that is and that is yeah that's its own thing though it's definitely got its own neoliberalism but those workers are protected by musicians unions right Exactly. So, so even so, they so they have protections through that, mm-hmm. and so it's not. And so, yeah, because you know, you take different gigs from different companies. You know, you're not just going to work for one studio or one record label. Yeah. But this is but this is different because the whole thing about Uber is like, you know, I did TaskRabbit when I lived in San Francisco for a little while, and it's like every check you get is from Task that company like they are signing your checks and as far as i'm concerned if one person if one company is signing all of your checks for a year and i know there are people who do uber and lyft so if two of those come but that just means you have two jobs if two of those companies Mm -hmm. if only are signing checks to you every week you know it's like and you depend and you're making you know what 25 to thirty thousand dollars like you're an employee yeah exactly you're, yeah, like like they like they own you, but of course, the whole model of Uber and all of these gig economy companies is based on they the only thing they're disrupting any of them is just labor laws. Yeah, that's and so what, <laughs> that's and so disrupting. and so uh, California Prop Twenty Two. This is how it's related to AB Five. So Prop Twenty Two is basic was basically written by these companies, Uber and Lyft, essentially. Um to get rid of AB5. So basically a yes vote on Prop 22 is to define app-based transportation delivery drivers as independent contractors, but they say like, you know, they're going to adopt some labor and wage policies, but they're not as robust as like basic, you know, uh uh basically the, what the, the laws we already have essentially. Yeah. So, yes, as terrible as they are. Right. And, and so, as un- unenforceable as they are, they're still better than what you would get as an independent contractor. Yeah, and then a no vote is basically um, going with what it is already in um, AB five. Now the thing is, is like you know these, yeah, because these app companies have basically just you know fucking sent a, a scud missile to our whole kind of workers comp system and disrupting basic like 
labor laws and protections, there have to be there has to be like you know new laws and regulations to um, adapt to the new environment of app based um, work, but also while still maintaining like you know making sure that because think about the thing about like independent contracting and this is like you know this is something that really fucked up the media industry is that. A lot of writers, if they're not employed staff writers, they are working as independent contractors. So, for example, um, you know, I've written for several different publications like Truthout, Alternate the Nation, Telesaur English, Alakbar English. And this is normal. Like for writers, like you get paid per article depending on and it's, it's decided between you and the publication but beforehand in the days of print like let's say in the 70s um they would pay you i think it was like maybe 50 cents a word or something like that it was like they would pay you per um word count like a certain rate per word count so you could easily make like a thousand dollars per article and that can you know going back to the 70s like you you could you're not rich at that time but it's like you can you know live comfortably you could live comfortably by just being a writer and then even in the 90s you can be a writer and still like maybe work as a barista and still you know kind of survive in in the whatever 90s grunge or alternative scene but nowadays like with so much writing going online and so much revenue being driven by clickbait and ad revenue the payment for writers is a lot like much much lower than it was in in the 70s and 90s and so basically like my point is that classifying workers as independent contractors is really just a way to cheat people out of uh wages and and workers protections that's really what it's about and it's this is not it's it's beyond just uber and lyft it impacts so many other industries especially um, media and writing and journalism so i i voted no on 22 just just having that experience of being an independent contractor knowing like yeah like this is basically a way for workers to be cheated out of uh you know because the thing is like uber lyft drivers put in the same fucking work as cab drivers so they should just be getting the same benefits as cab drivers but and, um, and a lot of Uber drivers are former cab drivers, right? Who got put out of work. And it's, yeah, it's important to understand. Well, first of all, that there, the amount of money Uber is spending on like yes on Prop Twenty Two ads, and I hear like they put it even on the app. Like when you mm-hmm. ask for a ride, you have to click yes on Twenty Two, which is yeah. an insane kind of data collection thing. Um, but uh, the amount of money they're spending on that, they could just pay their workers more and it would and, you know, this problem would be solved. But it's not about that. It's about power and it's about maintaining this business model, because, yeah, certainly if it falls in California, that's going to have nationwide implications because how much of their business is in California. Right. They're going to have to restructure the whole thing. But on the other hand, if they succeed at be, you know, it's yeah, it starts with Uber and Lyft and DoorDash. But they'll come for the next industry. I mean, the the way these people think, the way, you know, the ruling class thinks is, yeah, any any more, like, proletarianization that they can hide under independent contractor and can sell to bootlickers is, oh, no, you're an entrepreneur. I mean, let's, I want, I want to get this thing straight because I know, especially, like, in the younger generation, everyone thinks of themselves as an entrepreneur. 
but if you are depending on one company for your uh for all of your income and you don't own that platform like you are a rentier you are not an entrepreneur you're not uh, you are not a business owner if you make all your money on instagram or uber or you know instacart or any any of those things because they're going to come for any future industry they will anything that can be moved to an app they will do that and then they will make everyone an independent contractor and it will make any form of labor solidarity that much harder and so there's so much organizing that went in to get to this point that it had you you know they those workers have to be supported and you we cannot you can't let uber win because it's i mean yeah though i mean the people who run uber are psychopaths in their own right and speaking of people like i mean uh, so on ballotpedia.org so there's the supporters of um of of uh prop 22 and in terms of numbers like uh let me let me go to the numbers so the yes on 22 campaign um received uh this is through September 23rd, so this is a couple, like, last month. $184.3 million, so DoorDash contributed $47 million. Instacart provided $28 million. Lyft provided, uh, like, basically donated $48 million, and Jesus Uber Christ. contributed $50 million. So, yeah, they this, this month, the money they're just donating, donating just to the campaign could be used to basically pay their workers. I want to get down also to the organizations, and then after... I talk about that. I'll wrap up and then switch to um, Nigeria. But uh, the supporters of Yes on Twenty Two, because I've been hearing some of the ads. So this is um, it's interesting because Mothers Against Drunk Driving are supporting this, and their rhetoric is like, "Oh, this will you know keep Uber and Lyft to um, prevent drunk driving." But it's like that's that's like a very oh, the way they're spinning it is like beyond like totally misinterpreting what the implications of prop 22 are yeah so so but it but this is it's just it just gives it's just a given example of like the kind of uh fear-mongering that's been going to the campaign but then the other organizations that are supporting this so the unions the only unions i can see so far that are supporting it that are listed here are the police the california police chiefs association and the california state sheriff's association and the california police officers Association. so basically all the police unions are supporting it um and then the organizations um cal asian chamber of commerce california hispanic chambers of commerce california black chamber of commerce california naacp state conference um and national national black chamber of commerce so like all these different like ethnic communities like asians hispanics blacks like all their basic like their capitalist bourgeois elements are supporting this and what i think one argument i've heard is that oh like this this bill will help um because uber and lyft have like a lot of black and non-white drivers so it's i've heard some people spin it as that is that like uh this helps, you know, the black people who drive Uber and Lyft. But it's like, okay, so... No, it does the opposite. Right. Black workers have to be at the mercy of Uber and Lyft, like, in terms of wages. It's such a weird thing, because, like, this is something that, like, I think uh, that I can probably tie into even with the Ice Cube discussion, which is that, like, um, there there really is a... In terms of mainstream black political discourse, like, uh, uh, 
a lack of appreciation a lack of appreciation for class struggle because like just because yeah. the just because the black chamber of commerce is supporting this bill doesn't mean like that their support is going to benefit the masses of black people especially working class and poor black people because i don't see like how uh giving uber, companies like uber and lyft a monopoly over being able to control the wages of 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 black workers how that helps them rather than like okay at least give black workers the minimum amount of worker protections especially when it comes to un- unemployment benefits workers comps minimum wage those sorts of things so, you know even as as flawed as those laws are like they are the the one bit of a social fucking safety net we do have in this country compared to other, others so uber and lyft are like destroying even that and so um yeah like there are like pro businessy types who pose themselves as pro-black and that's kind of getting to the internal dialectics of black politics but that i mean that's my issue because it's like i don't i don't like the kind of pro-black politics that are just mired in capitalism because it's like okay yeah like maybe it'll benefit the black people who are like the bourgeois elements of, of the black community but that doesn't it doesn't provide any material benefits for the masses of working class black people in like you know selling black people on this idea that like oh yeah you're poor and you're you live like shit but someday if you just hustle and grind you could become an entrepreneur like there's a lot of that in like some of the black empowerment yeah even to some extent def- definitely more so in the black nationalist uh circles even though i think like they're they're kind of using black nationalism in a way that is, is kind of reactionary, but that's a whole different discussion. But I just want to highlight that, that yeah, like the organizations that are supporting yes on prop 22 are, yeah, include the chambers of commerce of different non-white ethnic communities compared to the people who are opposing it. Um, Labor Federation, professional firefighters, teachers, uh, teachers association, um, uh, the ACLU, SEIU, unite here. Um, yeah, like the, basically the organizations that are fighting for labor. And by the way, quite a few of these organizations, I know for a fact, like SCIU represents a lot of black workers as well. Um, yeah, well, it is the Service Employees International so, Union. So there you go. So Yeah, I, yeah, I, I want to say, yeah, with the Black Chamber of Commerce and the Latino Chamber. It's like, first of all, I mean, they, like it's not going to help like the black bourgeoisie. Like, it's not going to empower them in the sense that they are in underga- undergo- undergoing any, like, actual political project. Like, this doesn't help them because those people don't own Uber and Lyft. No, they don't. Exactly. That's the thing. That's the th- <laughs> No, thank you. Yes, that's, that's so important because, like, a lot of, like, the sort of hustle and grind black entrepreneurial, like, financial literacy type of people, some of, like, the boys walking types, like even e franklin fraser pointed us out in black bourgeoisie like the black bourgeoisie and business class have always inflated how much fucking money and wealth they actually have was like you don't own shit like they really don't no. not even like jay-z and oprah like they're rich but like they're not bill gates rich. in, in they, america fuck out of here no way no i mean that's why i bring up that chris rock joke that like if bill yeah. gates had oprah winfrey money he'd slit he'd slit his throat because that's the thing is like like because even if you get into revolutionary theory like there is a role for a bourgeoisie if as long as they're nationalistic but i think like the the sort of the black entrepreneurial types like 
they think that they can get black empowerment by working through market capitalism, which is which I just think is I agree with the sentiment of pro blackness and fighting for black people, but you're not going to just working yeah. through the market system that's not going to yield material benefits for them for the masses of black people so like their whole theory of change is fucked up and yeah in terms of material wealth like they don't have nearly as much power especially yeah like they don't have the kind of power that uber and lyft have in terms of fucking money and, and political influence yeah not, yeah not and gone. and chamber of commerce as well as be reactionary i mean entire reason any chamber of commerce exists in the first place is basically the it literally is the bourgeoisie organizing to fight the iww uh back in the <laughs> back in the 20s so you'll appreciate that adam as yeah a, as a card carrying member like yeah the, that's that's silly it's but it makes sense because they understand class solidarity i mean they understand class of, i don't want to say class over race but they understand you know what the real contradiction is um so you know yeah think about that uh, because so so far the polls um wow okay so 45 percent. this is as of uh september 28th which is like a month ago 45 percent support prop 22 31 percent oppose and 25 percent are undecided so this is oh, yes it's God. pretty but before that it was 39 support 36 oppose so we'll see i mean yeah because ballots are still rolling in so um this is this is just a poll but you know we'll see anyway uh switching gears from the election to nigeria um probably spend a couple minutes on this because this is a very fluid situation but um last week we talked about the protests against um police brutality particularly um against SARS which is the special anti-robbery squad in Nigeria which is I think kind of similar I guess the equivalent is almost similar to America's SWAT units in a way they're like a, a special unit of Nigerian police um there were protests against SARS and there have been protests against SARS in Nigeria. The Nigerian government, the, the head of the police disbanded SARS, but apparently that was just PR and they just replaced SARS with SWAT. So, uh, there have been, mask yeah, off. yeah, it's just like one mask on, one mask off, one mask on. Um, and so people, people, Nigerians are still protesting, um, nonviolently. And, uh, um, apparent. So there was. Um, th- if you look on Twitter, there's hashtag uh, Lecky Massacre. So on October twentieth, um, basically Nigerian sub- security forces opened fire um, at a. It was a toll gate in the Lecky district of Ni- uh, Lagos in Nigeria, and um, yeah, like they shot dead at least two people and then you know like there's more scuffles and they just basically started killing more shooting more and more people i think like at least 15 or 20 people have died so far and uh dozens um uh yeah like dozens have been injured and just i've been seeing some of the images out of my nigeria it's like i mean there's some there's some pretty gruesome images of uh of of you know of 
soldiers just killing. So this is this is live am- ammunition. These are not rubber bullets. This, they're shooting people with live am- ammunition. They must have been trained by the Louisville police. <laughs> right. Yeah. And uh, there's a really good article in Hood Communist. Um, uh, actually, I I'll I'll read some of it. It's called NSAR's contextual primary on the primer on the youth led. Um, anti-police movement in nigeria by nanaya muchi and i'll read a little bit because i think there's something she said here that i think is really important to talk about so um she writes before the 1990s the u.s focused on the middle east and north africa but then began to expand to west africa and enter into agreements to engage in military exercises training programs and increase weapons these are the tactics you see in the streets of nigeria now Today, imperialism in Nigeria continues. Nigeria is the largest oil and gas producer in Africa, and at the mercy of U.S. and U.S. and European powers, needs oil to make more weapons, to go to war, to steal more, to steal more land and resources, and extract more wealth. U.S. companies like Shell and Chevron are responsible for killing, for, responsible for millions of deaths, environmental disasters, and constant intercommunal violence. Thousands of people in the in the Niger Delta are being pushed off their lands to expand U.S. wealth. Now the U.S. and its European allies are using the war on terror to expand military domination on the African continent. Policies like the United States Africa Command are equipping and training Nigerian police slash military to fight terrorism. However, people understand that that what the U.S. is doing is seeking to expand economic control over Nigeria. Even if SARS is to end, the Western influence on the Nigerian government will only push to establish establish a newer arm of the law because of the intended purpose of the Nigerian police military. Equally alarming is the Western involvement in constructing new prisons in Ghana and Nigeria. We understand here in the United States that prisons produce free, lab- free labor. We know here in the U.S. that prisons prison serves as an extension of slavery. We, what we must begin to understand is how Western colonial influence in West Africa will have the same effect. Abolition of neocolonial oppressive states must be international. Um, and also, I think uh, if you follow, I'm trying to find some uh, accounts. Uh, basically, I've been following just in the Pan-African organizations I'm in, like we've been talking a lot about this, like internally. And I, I've been trying to like find, you know, um, other Nigerian activists uh, to to pay attention to what's going on and talk to um, Nigerian comrades of mine to, to be more informed. But I mean, yeah, like this, the, this, this is getting really serious. And like, I mean, even now, like it's getting the attention of the West and, you know, Hillary Clinton tweeted in support. Oh God. Well, that's, yeah. That's bad. Sorry. Yeah. If Hillary Clinton it, supports your movement internationally. It's bad. I'm sorry. Yeah. And, um, uh, well, I don't want to say that's bad. I'm just saying that's not a good sign. I, I'm well, trying to, we'll like, get into this more next week. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, and some there are some uh i don't i don't think this is a, a unanimous demand but there are some people who've been demanding um sanctions um on nigerian government or specific uh specific members of the nigerian um state apparatus and then some people who are a lot more critical okay all right i was trying to find a tweet that hillary clinton tweeted okay here it is she said um uh, 
I'm calling on um, this is President uh, Nigeria, Muhammad Buhari. I'm calling on Muhammad Buhari and the Nigerian army to stop killing young and SARS protesters. Stop hashtag stop Nigeria government. This is what Hillary Clinton tweeted. She tweeted hashtag stop Nigeria government. And then Hillary Clinton was a major mastermind of well not i wouldn't say mastermind but a, a major 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 advocate within the obama administration for the 2011 nato intervention in libya and well libya is pretty much a failed state um there's i think still slavery going in libya and so someone like hillary clinton who is very very hawkish and uses the guise of humanitarian intervention like in the case of Libya, she was using the cause of the Arab Spring to basically intervene and bomb Libya. And she was, uh, she kind of cackled about, you know, when Gaddafi was killed. So she's tweeting this. She tweeted this on October 20th. I'm calling on President Mohamed Buhari and the Nigerian army to stop killing young and SARS protesters. Hashtag stop Nigeria. No, she's telling that. She's telling the Nigerian government to stop. It's all a misunderstanding. As as for, I mean, I also find it funny because it's like Hillary, you don't have any power. Who are you? Like like you can call on whoever you want. No one's gonna listen to you. But it's still it's still bad. Um, and it yeah, it's I I haven't had a whole lot of time to read up on it. Other than I did end up hearing a an interview with an on NPR. Um, as I was driving around this week about about this protest. So we'll definitely come back to it next week. I just want to say with regards to, uh, yeah, sort of neo-colonialism in Nigeria, Google Keo Bell versus Royal Dutch Petroleum Company. Mm. Uh, that was a Supreme Court case. And you will find some interesting facts about things that uh, the Shell, Royal Dutch Shell, aka shell gas um was up has been up to um but yes yeah so i um i wanted to provide an update on that and i think um uh i know well today is um uh today is uh thursday yeah october 22nd well on the west coast anyway east coast yeah uh friday october 23rd but um on saturday october 24th which is probably when this episode will be released. I know there is a solidarity protest in Oakland, California. So, you know, support for support for this movement is globalizing, particularly within the African diaspora and the black community here in the United States. And so I, th- I think like uh, th- that is the spirit of Pan-Africanism, um, Pan-Africanism in action. And um, yeah, why I think like, you know, that kind of, international solidarity between all people of african descent no matter where we are like that that's why i think it's really important because you know we can't just fight our own fight you know based in our own locations especially you know when we're experiencing similar forms of oppression that stem from uh slavery and colonialism that have impacted pretty much all people of african descent both on the continent and in the diaspora um, but yeah, we'll be we'll we'll uh we'll talk more about it um uh for our next episode. 
Um, but yeah, like as this situation develops, um, we'll talk more about it because yeah, this is not just like just some one thing because like this is this is this is something that like deserves to be, um, discussed even more. Um, because yeah, we were talking about earlier like obviously Bolivia and um how the U.S. settler left um how it kind of sucks when it comes to anti-imperialism and um that's why i said earlier that like people who care about pan-africanism like you don't need to wait for the settler left to jump in because even in like you know uh non-black left social dem circles i haven't heard much about the nsars protest and i don't even hear like shit about africa like in mm-hmm. in all my experiences in the left like even when like you know um because i know like i've written about like um the u.s military presence in africa including like drone strikes in somalia and then uh i like i rarely hear even like leftists talking about africom and the u.s military yeah. presence in africa so um yeah but yeah, those of us those of us who do care about stuff, like yeah, we can you know, we we don't have to wait around for we don't have to wait wait around for those types of folks. But um it's something that's important and uh yeah, I just wanted to give an update on that and some of the images were kinda of disturbing, but definitely sending lots of love and solidarity to the pro- love and solidarity to the protesters in Nigeria. Um and I'll I'll transition to um The opposite well, of international solidarity <laughs> yeah but this is something that, like this has been on my mind for a while but i'm sure um i mean this is speaking of uh black politics um both domestic and international um the rapper ice cube has been in the news lately um because he met with uh donald trump about his contract with black america and people are like Ugh, like that means black men are going conservative and there's all this like sort of just idiotic discourse around it um and i'm in a i'm in, i'm in love with the mind that like oh, i feel like both sides of this argument really suck so i'll explain why i think both yeah. sides of this, of this uh, argument really suck but go no, ahead. i will also say you should always assume assume that someone like ice cube is going to speak for his class first before he's going to speak for uh you know the masses of black men out there i mean He's yeah. re- he he represents you know he's part of a celebrity class and whatever he did when he was in NWA or even you know in his earlier albums I mean this is a guy who made Ride Along and Ride Along too so <laughs> that's important to remember I mean yeah. that's it, you know it, I yeah you know, I have respect for Ice Cube musically though I was listening to some of his uh, solo stuff and yeah I mean yeah the political content is. I don't know. We we should we should probably get into that in a different episode. But yeah, he's not like the most, um, I guess politically astute at the you know in the context of like where like the actual standards we should have for people who are engaged politically pu- as public figures. So. Yeah, of course, he would sign on to something like this. And of course, he would think that like meeting with Trump is going to do anything other than just give Trump a photo op right before an election to prove to not to any black people that are paying attention. Let's be clear. None of the shit Republicans do in terms of electoral messaging 
is aimed at black people. They know they're not going to vote for them. And despite whatever Jamel Hill and Brittany Cooper want to say. Yeah. Um, it's aimed at white people to convince them that the Republican Party is not as racist as they would think. And that therefore, I mean, because I, once they have the racist vote in the bag, there's still some people who are like, ah, I mean, this is a little too racist. They're like, no, you know, it's aimed at those white people. It's not actually aimed at black people. Yeah. Any Republican electoral messaging to the black community is not actually aimed at black people because it's so in- incredibly insulting and patronizing that anyone, any black person who pays attention to it, like is immediately turning, tuning it out because it's just pointless. Yeah. Uh, I want to bring it um, on. Yeah. So there, there have been a lot of op-eds and um, just the online and media discourse that so a lot of the like basically like the the, the black liberal pundit class they're using this using ice cubes meeting with donald trump to say like oh black men are turning like are more pro-trump and they could swing the election in favor of donald trump or something like that that's basically what they're trying to say and um to to make things clear like ice cube did not endorse donald trump this is not an endorsement of donald trump however 50 Cent did endorse Donald Trump, but that's because 50 Cent's always been conservative. Because back in 2005, 50 Cent praised George W. Bush as gangsta. He also, when Kanye West, before pre-MAGA Kanye West, when Kanye West in 2005 during Hurricane Katrina said on on public television that um, George Bush doesn't care about black people, 50 Cent criticized Kanye West for saying that. So... During the Bush years, 50 Cent has always been very pro-Bush, which is why, like, I always had a, when I was, like, I was, I was still in high school, I was, like, in high school, kind of going to, between, yeah, like, it was a long time ago, but I remember. Back in the day when 50 Cent made music. Right, but I remember, I did not like 50 Cent because of that, because I was, like, a very, like, you know, hardcore, like, anti-Bush liberal, and I, like, when 50 Cent said he liked Bush, I was like, oh, fuck him. So... I remember 50 Cent always having conservative politics. So for 50 Cent to endorse Trump because – and the reason why is because 50 Cent looked at Biden's tax plan and said, yeah, yeah. oh, it's going to hurt my taxes. So I'll vote for Trump. It's like that's 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 expected. But he doesn't speak for like, oh, black men. It's just like he's just a rich celebrity and he's looking out for his class interests. That's it. Um, yeah. But people people are using 50 Cent and Ice Cube as avatars of like like – like they somehow represent the mind of all black men, which is just not true. In a um, horrendously disingenuous argument. Yeah, and to give some stats, um, Chris Chris Towler, he's a political science, a black scholar and political scientist, and he um, he's with the uh, Black Voter Project, and um, the Black Voter Project did a sample, like a poll of um, attitudes toward Kamala Harris by gender. So black women, so they did it from uh, cold to warm to very warm in terms of attitudes toward Kamala Harris. So cold would be like kind of negative and then warm would be like, oh, kind of cool. And then very warm would be like they really like Kamala Harris. So um, black women, 35% had cold attitudes toward Kamala Harris, 26% had warm attitudes toward Kamala Harris, 
and 39% had very warm attitudes toward Kamala Harris. Black men, 29% had cold attitudes, 30% had warm, and 41% had very warm. So basically, when it comes to the attitudes toward Kamala Harris, black men have more positive attitudes toward Kamala Harris than black men than black women. Um, and then well, going, that's just because they support the police because they're reactionary. And then also, it also uh, once you break it down by age, this is when you really begin to see a difference. So under fifty-one years old, forty-one uh, percent of black men and forty-nine percent of black women have cold attitudes toward Kamala Harris. This is for black people under the age of 51 for those over the age of 50 22 percent of black men and 21 percent of black women have cold attitudes toward kamala harris now we when you get into very warm you really see a big difference um for older black people over the age of 50 53 percent of black men and 52 percent of black women have very warm attitudes toward kamala harris for younger black people basically like Younger Gen Xers, Millennials, and Zoomers, those under the age of 51, 23% of black women and 28% of black men have very warm attitudes toward Kamala Harris. So the real difference is actually by generation and age, not gender. Because as you can see, like with these numbers, black men and black women in terms of like women in general, like are, you know, more liberal and progressive than men. Like that, that's, that's incontroversial that's to be expected yeah, obviously because right exactly across the board because of yeah the gender oppression that women face so yeah it's going to lend they're going to be a bit a little bit more progressive than men but if you look at black men among like th- the male demographics black men are the most liberal especially compared to latino men white men and asian men um now yes if you compare black women and black men black women are slightly more liberal but like they're both largely very liberal and then i'll bring some other numbers just and i'm 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 rattling i'm rattling off these numbers because what was getting me annoyed is that these analyses and these hot takes about black voter behavior were just very ahistorical um and there's just a lot of like a lot of good scholarship and experts and people who count this stuff who've analyzed black voter behavior. Um, there's this site called Black Demographics, and um, they tracked black votes and even black party affiliation going back to 1936. Um, so uh, they did party affiliation going back to 2000, and they. They broke it down by strong Democrat, not strong Democrat, independent, near Democrat, independent, independent, near Republican, not strong Republican, strong Republican. Um, Consistently, black Republicans, those who are consistent black Republicans, they're usually around like 8%, maybe 10, but usually around like, uh, sorry, like 6%, like 6% around there. Um, Then if you add like independent, near Republicans... That basically goes up to like 10%. Um, those who are independent, like truly independent, uh, in 2000, it was 18%. In 2012, it was 9%. In 2002, it was 21%. In 20, 2016, it was 13%. Um, strong Democrat, 
in 2016. Not strong Democrat, 22%. This is party affiliation. So basically, like, um, my point is, in terms of political affiliation, black people are mostly Democrat, either independent, near Democrat, or strong Democrat. And that's usually around, uh, like, 70, 75% who are, I'd say, like, of pl- liberal, politically affiliated in terms of their thinking. Then there's, like, maybe, I don't know, 15% who are swing voters, and then, like, uh, 10% who are consistent Republicans. But my point is, like, that's that's normal political behavior. Because some people have been saying, like, oh, 17% of black men support Trump. Well, actually, yeah, if, if it makes sense because, um, you know, if you include, like, swing voters and consistent Republicans... I mean, it's not, it's not too, it's not, it's, it's not too far off the norm, is my point. Uh, then if you look at the black vote for president, uh, going in 1936, 71% of black people voted for uh, a Democrat as president, voted Democrat for president. And that's because, like, basically the majority of black people have voted Democrat for president since 1936 consistently and since like since 1964 more than 80 percent 80 percent of black people have voted democratic for president since 1964 that has not changed since 1964 then if you go to party affiliation um in 1936 it's interesting because like 44 44- 44% of black people were Democrats, 37% were Republicans, and 19% were other or independent. So there was actually more of a more ideological party diversity within the black community. But by 1936, like most black people were voting for Dem- the Democrat. And then um, since, yeah, 1964, most black people have um, identified as Democrat. In 2016, actually, uh, 70% of black people identify as democratic, 23% identify as other or independent, and 3% identify as Republican. Now, for votes, like, I think it was like 8% of black people voted. This is, this is black demographics, and, and they're based on, based on, like, Pew Research and all that. But 80, the 88% of black people voted for Clinton in 2016, and that's the majority of black men and the majority of black women. And so my point is that, like, people are going to throw these numbers out, but you have to put them in context. Like, okay, yeah, there's going to be some black men who are either consistently Republican or they're swing voters. So the black men that Trump is appealing to is usually is, is going to be those people who either consistently vote Republican or they're swing voters. And yeah, they're a swing voter, but they're not the majority in the black community. The majority, which is consistent, is has consistently been liberal pro democratic party basically because like ever since 1936 and franklin roosevelt like he largely brought black people into the democratic party coalition and that's 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 why black people have been voting democrats for president for almost since 100 years going back to 1936 that's a long fucking time so all this like hand wringing that like oh black men might be like there's no scenario in which 
uh, there's no scenario in which a significant number of black men are going to vote Trump in a way that'll that'll swing the election beyond any other factor like rigging, um, political intimidation, uh, the pandemic fucking up the votes, um, or even like you know his base turning out in larger numbers. I mean, so. Anyway, I wanted to get that out of the way, but yeah. I also, I also, I just wanted to kind of break that down because there's just been so much, uh, misinformation about black people in our voting behavior. But I read, I read through the contract with Black America, um, and Peter, I'll say some of the stuff in here, and, and I'll get your reaction, yeah. and then, I, I, and, and, then, and then we'll wrap up. I, I just want to say that, like, you guys know. You made Adam mad when he brings out the Pew Charitable Trust research. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. you know, you, you know, you fucked up. <laughs> when Adam starts reciting statistics, it's uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, it, yeah, they, no, you're right. That oh god, fucking made me mad. <laughs> uh, um, yeah, I read through contract with Black America. So Ice Cube worked on it with um. Uh, Professor Derek Hamilton, um, who's he does a lot of he does actually Derek Hamilton does a lot of really good work on the racial wealth gap, and then he also consulted with Dr. Claude Anderson, who like definitely is um. Dr. Claude Anderson is not like I would he's not like a left wing black academic, but he's done a lot of really good work on analyzing um economic disempowerment of black people and the the, sort of the deeper roots of the wealth gap between black America and white America. So, but the thing is like the, the academics he consulted with don't really have like, um, they aren't really progressive in their politics. And this, this document reveals that. Um, so, uh, it brings up like the documents fine, but the thing is, is is a lot of the stuff is very very moderate and centrist compared to the movement for Black Lives Matter platform. Um, for example, okay, it advocates for uh, baby bonds. Oh, here's a sentence right here. While capitalism is a good system, it requires okay. capital. Okay. <laughs> there you go. So. <laughs> So, yeah, that, I'm, t- I'm telling you. So this is so this is the thing that that that, t- that reveals the ideology right there. That there's a belief that capitalism is a fundamentally good system, but it just needs some tweaks to work for Black people's benefit. Yeah, which I just for all the, I guess yeah, I the Booker T. Washington consensus. Well, we're still workshopping the name, but I like that name. Because it relates to the Washington consensus. For those kind of people, it's like, I don't understand how you can expect to achieve, like, racial equality in a fundamentally unequal system that thrives and perpetuates inequality on a broader level. Like, like that just never makes sense to me. Like, obviously, it's going to exacerbate, at the very least, I mean, not even getting to the structural arguments, it's going to exacerbate any other like forms of racial or social inequality like because that's what the system does so i don't understand how like you can make that argument cogently but it is 
also just very much like yeah this is this is what like the celebrity activist pr people come up with it's yeah they all get in a conference they all get on a conference call and they all come up with these stupid demands that no one that obviously trump's not going to do any of them i don't even understand what the point of this is um but they all think they're doing something great and then when people are like this is stupid then they get all mad and it's like no like you're like people like yeah the actual organizers you know which make up the movement for black lives who are actually one politically educated and two are connected to actual communities yet came up with something that's vastly more radical and forgive the word as it's now a buzzword transformational um but yeah that's it is because i think also somehow you mentioned like uh representation on movie sets yeah so i'll i'll read through a couple stuff so um they it proposes a baby bonds the baby bonds we we actually I, i mentioned this in our first episode which is about reparations baby bonds is like a sort of reparations light um it's like the diet it's not even like the diet coke version of reparations that's putting it kindly it's like the diet rc cola yeah it's like the diet rc cola of reparations is basically providing every child born into low wealth families with accounts that start at like 1000 this is something that like actually senator cory booker supports um and then also it says um Venture capital and private private equity funds that take money from police unions or other public entities must invest 13.4% of their total funds in black-owned businesses. So that's just like, oh, okay, that's just using venture capital to support, like, that's that. The, the government's not going to do, can't mandate that. Yeah, and so, and then also, like, when it comes to um, police reform, they, it does um, push for... Um, uh, defunding the police. Hold up, let me find the. Okay, here we go. Um, budget reallocation. This is what it says. In what has been referred to as defunding the police, twenty percent of twenty twenty budgets then going forward adjusted to inflation to be dedicated to improving conditions in lower class and black neighborhoods. Twenty percent of all police department budget increases will also flow into the community organizations tasked with spending such funds that's like okay 20 yeah wait 20 percent lo- of police budget increases do you catch that yeah they're yeah, not yeah. even yeah. talking about cutting the police budget they're talking about yeah the, inc- the new money they're gonna give police. right this is similar to like how they cut the budget for defense spending it's very some it's very very similar they cut the increase they don't cut the actual like the full-on budget so th- th- so this is like even the 20 percent. that's a lowball number compared to um for example michael sampson who's running for uh walnut creek city council he- he's proposing like around like 40 or 50 percent which is like i've in amongst like people people who've been running for um local and state offices who've been calling for a defunding the defunding the police usually the number is around like 40 or 50 percent 20 percent actual budget cut. of it of an actual budget cut yeah because if you look at a lot of mis- municipal budgets police departments eat up like anywhere from 60 to 75 percent of of uh yeah. city budgets there is huge some are 40 percent but like it's 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 huge and then they call for um 
de-escalation police training. There is a story in um, San Jose where someone, there is a, a black man who uh, specialized in, um, I think it was like de-escalation for police. And he was actually um, shot with like a rubber bullet at a protest by a police officer. So like even, because it, it mentions a lot about like, okay, mild, you know, budget decreases and then like training for um, police and then like these sort of very mild reforms that don't do much and then um but we'll yeah. give the police more money and then also it says minimum 13.4 percent black cast and crew on all major television and film productions that's just getting into like yeah like uh representation there's another thing when it came to da, 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 hold on um financial that's financial reform oh, okay here we go yeah the headline in this one black opportunity and representation which i think is like the representation was like a red flag for me like oh okay because representation is not empowerment or power for black people um okay it says affirmative action for all secondary schools in addition if the black population in the country the school is located in is greater than 13.4 percent the enrollment must be increased to that higher percentage however okay this is like school enrollment um school funding local funding for schools will be determined be determined by an equal share per student fund for all schools throughout the state there is also okay like i mean some i mean thing, that, that one is good get it because yeah. property taxes are basically how segrega- yeah. educational segregation gets involved. yeah so that one's good okay here is the representation I'll part. Give that one black rep black representation on all government civil rights investigative bodies again it's like okay you have representation in like these bodies but like that doesn't yield just having black people in like official positions that that does not automatically yield a tangible benefit for black people they do say this this one they say is good but i'll push even further it says mandatory civil rights and anti-racism classes in all elementary schools black scholars will write the textbooks and curriculum adapted for these classes institute the black history 365 curriculum african history highlighting okay that's good i think like um basically i i think like this right here should just be pushed toward like just having africana studies from k-12 basically just have africana studies black studies um throughout k-12 through um i I mean anti-racism is important but i don't think it goes far enough you need to you need to basically because anti-racism doesn't get to the heart of like uh essentially overturning and destroying the the western yeah. canon itself yeah. like that yeah i mean there are there are a lot of racist white children out there um so that might be helpful but it also just seems like the kind of thing that's just going to create that's almost designed to create a massive backlash and that's the thing that bugs me about all this kind about all the like integrationist quoted type stuff it's like we did already go through this in the 70s and right, it usually exactly. just ends up empowering the right because it's pretty unenforceable because there isn't like a political a block with political power backing it it's all just the largesse in you know wise governance of the US government and that's what's enforcing it there isn't any political power behind it and that's kind of the problem it's like 13.4% it's like i want 100% of freedom <laughs> That's a that's a good slogan. That's a good line. But yeah, it's like a hundred percent. What is this thirteen point four percent shit? Like no, like thirteen point four percent on like a universal 
motion picture studio. It's like, no, why doesn't Black Hollywood like make their own studios? Like, stop fucking around. So also, there's no there's no support in the document for um, universal health care. Uh, Trump has this um, platinum plan. Which is such like this is I just feel like this that name is so fucking racist because it's like oh yeah black people you guys all like credit cards right well here's a credit card for Black America here's your platinum plan here you go Negroes it's like five hundred billion dollars in investment toward Negroes okay Biden does not like you Negroes I like Negroes I love Negroes here's a credit card stay in their place as long as you stay in your place and you don't offend white people okay Negroes here's a credit card here you go get vote for me I don't, I don't even know what the platinum plan is it the, literally that's the fucking name is platinum plan this is what it sounds like it sounds like some fucking it sounds like one of those like well, reverse mortgage commercials you hear in the hood bro- and shit yeah it's like, it Steve, like a, Steve Harvey's uh, debit card or whatever. Right. Yeah. All, that's the thing. All these people, the re- one half the reason these people are so neoliberal is because they're all like running scams and they all have their little hustle and like predatory payment company and all this stuff. And they're and they have those demands so that they can get deals for themselves and their friends. I mean, that's that's like what those people are really actually up to under the guise of of you know. They might throw a couple actual demands in there, but that's a lot of what it is. Yeah, and then so here's some of the stuff in like the platinum plan. So it's like basically it promises fifty billion dollar investment, and most of it's just gonna go toward like um, black owned businesses. Which I mean, that's not a okay. Oh, here seek I mean, infrastructure. That, that, yeah, that's just gonna be government. That's just people handing out checks to their friends and calling it. Right, community reinvestment. No one knows where any of that money is going to go. Right, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and then um, a lot. Uh, oh, so there's also there's no police reform in the platinum plan. What it does say is continue to make historic improvements to the criminal justice system through common sense actions like the First Step Act, so stuff like that. Um, restore safety to America, America's great cities by working with police departments, community leaders, and mental health professionals to install the most responsive, professional, and accountable models of policing, including oh wow, diversity. <laughs> Trump is signing on to diversity training right after like his minute right after he recently's like, yeah, we're not going to have anti-racism training. That's anti-American. So. <laughs> There's there's nothing he's here that not like reading this shit. Yeah, I know, and like, there's nothing in here to hold fucking cops accountable. There's nothing in here about like redistributing wealth from like the fucking rich to the to the masses of working class and poor black people. Um, I mean, this is like very much similar to like the watered down capitalist black nationalism of like the seventies, which is like, yeah, we support black nationalism. We'll just give like black businesses money, but we won't know. We don't know where the money's actually going, but like, Hey, we will just, it's just, it's just, it's just like, uh, yeah. And then when the next <laughs> recession hits, they'll all get wiped out and white people get, get it all back. That's, right. Exactly. Versus. Okay. Versus um the movement for black lives, which actually is, um comprehensive and was called together by various black activist groups um uh throughout the country they had a platform in 2016 and they also had one for 2020 where they improved it um the thing that they have here that is missing from the contract with black america is they say we demand community control 
The most impacted in our communities need to control the laws, institutions, and policies that are meant to serve us from our schools to our local budgets, economies, and police departments. So community control, that's an actual uh, black left working class demand. Like that's a, that's a demand that like come, comes from comes from that soil. And then there's they say we demand independent black political power and black self-determination in all areas of society. We envision a remaking of the current US political system in order to create a real democracy where black people and all marginalized people can effectively exercise full political power. This is very similar to the a lot of the discussions that were going on in black America in the 70s, particularly the early 70s, and um, there were demands at the 1972 Gary Convention. They were pushing for an independent black political party. So this is continuing with like that radical tradition, and it, it because it's it's still it's still trying to answer a question that has has yet to be addressed. Um, they by the way they also support reparations. Um, and they also supported reparations in 2016, which is before Ados, American descendants of slavery, because Ados mm-hmm. is trying to be, claim credit for starting reparations. But like, no, like Movement for Black Lives has, they had reparations as part of their 2016 platform, which was before Ados really started as a movement because they started i think they started like around uh like 2017 2018 they didn't they weren't really around during um they weren't around in 2016 they weren't a thing back then um then they okay so here this where moving for black lives they talk about invest divest they say we demand investments in the education health and safety of black people instead of investments in the criminalizing caging and harming of black people we want investments in black communities determined by black communities in divestment from exploit exploitative forces including prisons fossil fuels police surveillance and exploitative corporations this includes a reallocation of funds at the federal state and local level from policing and incarceration to long-term safety strategies such as education local resort of local restorative justice services and employment programs um retroactive decriminalization and reparations for people who are impacted by um, the war on drugs it also says a constitutional right at the state and federal level to fully funded education which includes a clear articulation of the right to a free education for all special for t- protections for queer and trans students wraparound services social workers free health services a curriculum that acknowledges and addresses students material and cultural needs physical safety and recreation high quality food free daycare and freedom from unwarranted unwarranted search seizure and arrest um they also say uh a divestment from industri- industrial multinational multinational use of fossil fuels and investment in community-based sustainable energy solutions, a cut in military expenditures and reallocation of those funds to invest in domestic infrastructure and community well-being. Um, I'm trying to see, like, they also, okay, they have economic justice, um, the right for workers to organize in public and private sectors, uh, restoring Glass-Steagall, that was not in contract for Black America, <laughs> by the way. And by the way, the-, the Bernie the, bros got to him. <laughs> and by the way, I mean like the the elimination of the Glass Steagall Act that paved the way for the 2008 crash, which hurt Black people. So, um, financial support of Black alternative institutions, including policy that subsidizes and offers low interest, interest free, or federally guaranteed low interest loans to promote to promote 
to promote the development of cooperatives, land trusts, and culturally, respons culturally responsive health infrastructures that serve the collective needs of our communities. By the way, yeah, like we should probably do like an episode on community land trust, but I, I do remember I did a story about um, an apartment that was at risk of eviction and the community land trust actually bought it out and prevented the eviction. So community land trust, they are, they, those are good, are good alternatives for, um, cause community land trusts are basically like nonprofits that buy up the land that the house sits on, but in doing so they keep the, the rent, low so it's affordable for, for people to stay in um that's that's actually like a one of those um solutions for housing that go outside the the market system but are actually a lot more effective than the market system they also say a right to restored land clean air clean water and housing and an end to the exploitative privatization of natural resources natural resources including land and water. Um, I think there is something here that they talked about. Did they, oh, yeah. They also push for real, meaningful, and equitable universal health care. That was not in the contract for Black America. Are so, they, isn't there also something about supporting Palestine? I'm pretty sure. I think so. I forgot. Let me... I have to... Um, oh, I mean, they also talk about... yeah. Uh, COVID-19 relief, um, protecting the rights of protesters. Um, but this is, I mean, the movement for Black Lives Matter platform, uh, one was more democratically assembled because the organizations, yeah, like this is, um, yeah, it was, it was 50 organizations representing thousands of black people across the country. So that's where it came from. And that's how the, the, platform was cold together so whereas ice cube like he consulted dr claude anderson and Derek hamilton and members of the ados movement but like you know this is not to disrespect hamilton's and and anderson's work but the what cube was doing he wasn't really like contacting the activist organizations that have real roots in working class black communities to see what they wanted or even to look, because I don't see any overlap between the movement for Black Lives platform and the contract with Black America platform. So it was just like Ice Cube doing some solo, like solo soldier shit and claiming to represent all Black people. But really, like the platform that he came up with, like there's some stuff that's good, but it's a very, like, centrist moderate vision for black america whereas the movement for black lives matter platform as i read off some of the demands like are far more yeah progressive than anything in the cwba that ice cube came up with so to me like that's the real story beyond the whole fearing of uh black men turning turning the fear of black men going for trump now i will say to ice cube's credit one thing i do agree with him on is that he criticized the democratic party for taking black voters for granted and he also did hand the contract with black america to both parties both biden campaign and the trump campaign it's just that the trump campaign responded quicker whereas the biden campaign said that they would they would wait but i i think someone like ice cube should do what 
Colin Kaepernick has been doing, which is basically uses celebrity power to support activist groups on the ground and do like on the ground that kind of basically supporting grassroots activism and also the fucking money he has uses give his money to those organizations like because they they would need it i'm sure they would appreciate it he'd be far more useful and effective there than trying to act as this spokesperson for black people and trying to negotiate some deal because like i've heard people say like like the, the, the thing his whole theory of change is flawed because you don't go to someone like trump or a presidential campaign without leverage and backup like he's just going with his own celebrity power but he needs the in order for that strategy to be effective he needs to have like the support and the um mandate of masses of organized black people and black grassroots organizations and he did not he does not have that he did not have that i mean he had a good critique of the two-party system and how it hasn't helped black people but if you to me like the better approach is either one don't participate in the whole game itself and just focus on building independent black political power and someone like ice cube would be far more fucking effective of doing that because he has the money to do so being a hollywood celebrity or if he's going to meet with someone like trump he should he should have brought the support and mandate of masses of black grassroots organizations with him and he he didn't do any of that and so this whole thing turned up i just think it's uh you know again i agree with his critique of the two-party system but just the way he handled it i just thought like it was honestly kind of a fucking joke uh, I, I suppose know. you could say Ice Cube should have checked himself before he wrecked himself. Yes, definitely. I was trying to figure out what Ice Cube song to uh, to bring in. Uh, and so that's basically it, right? Yeah. Um, I mean, just on that, uh, just to wrap it up, I mean, my one final note I'll say is that um, kind of as you were saying earlier, but I think it's an important point because I think some people are were kind of surprised that Ice Cube would meet with Donald Trump because, you know, he was with NWA and fuck the police. And it's like, oh, the guy who did fuck the police uh, is meeting with Trump. But it's like, look, the Ice Cube of the NWA era and the fuck the police era is not the same Ice Cube of 2020. I mean, yeah, I'm sure he, in his heart, like, you know, he still has some of those sympathies but you know he's still a celebrity and people have to stop taking the word of black celebrities as the uh the sort of sentiment of the masses of regular black people that can that can only be expressed through mass political mobilization and organization and that's something that Ice Cube is not rooted in. Yeah. Um, and so not I, you, no less than Dave Chappelle, you know, in his stand up special was like, why do you need me to speak? The streets are speaking for themselves. And yes. Yeah. <laughs> right. No. And Dave Chappelle, like he, I mean, he hit the nose right there like that. He, he was right. Yeah. Like, you know, you guys, I mean, like you said, you don't, the, you guys don't need to hear from me. Like the streets are speaking and he's right about that. And, the streets can also organize and mobilize. And um, I don't think Ice Cube really tapped into that. And I think that's, that's the real, that's the real thing that people are missing is that, and how underwhelming that, 
contract of, with Black America, how underwhelming it is. But um, anyway, I just wanted to explain that because I don't want to go. I mean, we're both sick of talking about the election, but goddamn, like that. That I just wanted to <laughs> push back on some of the uh, dogma that's been going out regarding Ice Cube and Black voters, and some of the, I think, uh, sort of manipulation. Not even manipulation, but just outright like just misreadings of of black bad order. faith arguments. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, um, we'll end on that note. I mean, wait, hold on. Do do you have anything else to say about this, no, Peter? No, no. It's past three in the morning. I have to go to bed. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, on that note, we'll end it. Um, keep the faith and stay dangerous. See ya. Yeah. <laughs>